0: This morning, we are in the Gospel of Luke together, Luke chapter 13. In this section of Luke, Jesus is addressing a crowd of people. And he's been teaching them about many different things. In the last text that we looked at last week, Jesus reminded the people and his disciples that the time was short and that there was a need, an urgent need, to open their eyes for the people to see, to discern that Jesus, their Messiah, was right in front of them. And he rebuked the crowd and said, you're very good at being amateur meteorologists. You can look at the sky and tell that it's going to rain. You can feel the heat coming and you can know that 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 the wind is coming in and a heat wave is coming. But he said, you cannot see what's right in front of your very eyes. That the Messiah is here. The time that the prophets announced for hundreds of years is here and you're missing it. That theme of the time is now. The time to repent is now. Continues in the opening section of chapter 13 when Jesus is continuing to address the crowd and someone uh, brings up to Jesus a recent event that happened and apparently wanted his input on it or wanted to know what he thought should be done about it. And so in Luke chapter 13, it says, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to listen and to reflect on your holy word today. Lord, this is a treasured privilege that we have to have the Word of God, to be able to read it, to think on it, to know the wisdom of the eternal God that He has revealed through His apostles and prophets. We thank You for this time, Father, and we ask that You would bless it. May Your Spirit teach us and open our hearts to receive Your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the purpose... Of tragedy, Is there a particular design of God in the tragedies that befall people? Is God singling people out for divine judgment when tragedy strikes their lives? I remember vividly the first time that I preached this passage in Luke chapter 13, because as God's providence would have it, the I was preaching through Luke at, at that time, as I'm doing here. And as God's providence would have it, we arrived at this passage at Luke chapter 13, the Sunday after Hurricane Katrina in September of 2005. And it particularly addressed the issue of that week. What is, what is the purpose of tragedy? Some said... God is specifically singling out New Orleans because of their wickedness, because of how terrible they are. And this is God's judgment on them. I asked the question then, and I could ask it again this morning Is the devastation that Hurricane Katrina caused a sign of God's judgment on the cities of New Orleans, or Biloxi, or Gulfport, or the other towns? in southern Louisiana, and Mississippi, that were hit by that hurricane. Did God cause New Orleans to flood to the rooftops of the homes to judge them for their wickedness? Was Hurricane Katrina God's judgment on those cities? We could ask that about some other things, too. A major earthquake struck San Francisco in 1989 and... People pontificated that it was because of the rampant sexual immorality and homosexuality that God was specifically targeting San Francisco and hit them with a devastating earthquake. There were suggestions after September 11th, 2001 that it was the fault of uh, the immorality, the wickedness of New York city, or maybe of America as a whole, that those two planes flew into those buildings Many said that those terrorist attacks were God's judgment on the sin of New York or America as a whole. Tragedies invite these kinds of comments all the time. Whenever some tragedy strikes, people make these kind of comments. Well, God must have had something out for those people. It must be his judgment on their particular wickedness. But I want to put it quite bluntly this morning. People who say those things don't know what they're talking about. And those comments are ignorant. By ignorant, I mean they're lacking in information. They're lacking in information of passages like Luke chapter 13. And they're lacking more specifically in information of God's secret providential will that he has not revealed to them. How do we know the mind of God? As Paul says in Romans 11, who has been God's counselor? It's not unusual for people to make comments like this in times of tragedy. It's really been going on since the beginning of time. Something bad happens to somebody. Well, it must be because they deserve it. They must've been asking for God's judgment to nail them to the wall. Isn't that what, jo- what Job's friends thought? The theology that says that sexual immorality is to blame for San Francisco earthquakes. is the same theology that Job's friends used. Tragedy after tragedy struck Job and his friends had the perfect evaluation, didn't they? Job, you must have sinned. That's why this is happening to you. Bad things happen equals sin is the cause. It's a simple formula. In John 9, Jesus' disciples saw a man born blind. They had the same thought. Master, who sent this man or his parents that this man was born blind? And you remember what Jesus said? Either one but so that the works of God might be made manifest. So the glory of God might be seen. Who do we think we are to be able to stand up and proclaim that we know why God does what he does? Do we know the mind of God? Are we God's counselors? Do we fully understand the mind of God? God finally spoke at the end of the book of Job and put to silence all the reasoning and all the opinions of man. All of Job's friends were silenced. And what the end of Job reveals is that God cannot be figured out. His providence is mysterious. It is secret. It is hidden. He does things for a variety of reasons, but they're not always the reasons that we think. God is not a robot. He's not a computer. He's not a machine. We don't have his processes all figured out. He is a living, moving, all wise, infinite, holy, righteous being. And he does as he pleases. Now, am I suggesting that God was not providentially in control of Hurricane Katrina or 9-11 or an earthquake in San Francisco in 1989? Not at all. God was sovereignly in control of all of those things. God was sovereignly directing that storm to its appointed destination, just as he sovereignly determined the blindness of that man in John chapter 9. And just as he sovereignly allowed Satan to inflict Job and cause devastation to happen to him. God is in control. But we must not think for a moment that we understand the mind of God or that we know why he does what he does. The lesson of Luke 13, 1 through 9 is this hurricane Katrina did not happen because the people of new Orleans were great sinners. Hurricane Katrina happened because you and I are great sinners. That's the point that Jesus is making. We are all sinners. Bad things happen because we live in a sin cursed world and everyone on this planet is a sinner. Sin, in a general sense, is the moral cause, isn't it, of all disease, all catastrophe, all death. But we do not have the wisdom of God to point to any particular person and say that any individual misfortune is a direct result of God's judgment on his sin. We cannot point to a particular catastrophe and say that it was God's specific judgment on that city because of their sin. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And the point is that Winfield deserves a hurricane just as much as New Orleans did. Winfield deserves a 2011 style Tuscaloosa tornado just as much as Tuscaloosa did. Winfield deserves a terrorist attack just as much as New York did. We're all sinners. And unless we repent, Jesus says we will all perish. So Jesus says to these people, they asked Jesus this question. They kind of put this event to him in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. It says there were some people there who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, what is this talking about? It's a very tragic event. We do not have, I believe, a historical record of this event from other sources outside of the Bible. So other historical sources, Roman sources. We also don't have any other information about this from the Bible. Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us about this event. But apparently what had happened was Pilate, the governing authority of that region under Caesar, wanted to make a point. Maybe there was a revolt. Maybe there was a small rebellion in some town. And Pilate wanted to make a point. He wanted to make an example of these people. And so in the very midst of their worship of God, while sacrifices were being offered, the blood of sacrifices was being shed. Pilate in an ironic way said, I'm going to shed their blood too. And so Pilate uh, sent Roman soldiers in and slaughtered those people in the midst, in the act of their worship of offering animal sacrifices to God. That's what it means when their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. It was a tragic event. Many, many people died. And that's what the people are bringing up to Jesus' attention. And it's almost as if if there's a question, there's there's an implied question in it. Lord, what do you think about this? What, What should be done about this? What's the significance of this? Jesus understands the root of their question and he gets right to the point when he says, Do you think that these Pilates or that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Jesus knew their thoughts, and he knew the very common thought that a lot of people had at that time. Job's friends had it, the disciples even had it when they saw a man born blind. But something bad happens, and they must have been really bad. They must have been really wicked for God to bring this kind of judgment on them. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Did God single them out for judgment because they're worse? They're they're wicked sinners more than you or more than other Galileans? He says, no. No, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus gives a commentary on this event, but it is not a political one in the sense of, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? If you're the Messiah, certainly you should be doing something about this. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a political response, but I'll give you a theological one. And he says that these people did not die because God was specifically judging them. It's not because they were worse sinners than others. Not at all. He turns the event into a lesson for the people standing there that day. And it's the same lesson for us. Unless we repent, we too will perish. Were these Galileans killed by Pilate because God was judging them? No, but God will judge you, Jesus says. Were they slaughtered by Pilate because they were sinners? No, but you are sinners. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's taking the focus off of others and he's placing it back on them. Quit worrying about them and why something did or did not happen to someone else. You don't know the mind of God. Don't worry about their sin and why tragedy happened. You better be worrying about your own sin and the eternal tragedy that awaits you. You see, they were looking at physical death as God's judgment on those Galileans. But Jesus was telling them to worry about spiritual death, wasn't he? Spiritual death and hell. If you don't repent, you will perish in hell. See, here's the point. Everyone dies, don't they? Everyone dies. The question is, at what time and under what circumstances, right? All that's different is the timing of how long you live and under what circumstances you die, but everybody dies. And you can't tell anything about someone's heart by the way they die, right? It's essentially what these people were doing. They were saying these Galileans died in a horrific way. They must've been wicked. Jesus says, no, a man who dies in a hurricane is no different than a man who dies on his deathbed when he's 90 years old of natural causes. They both die just under different circumstances. The real question is, did either one of them repent and believe in Christ? You see, the person who died in the hurricane in some tragedy may have repented of his sins and believed in Christ, and he'll spend eternity with God. The 90-year-old man who lived a very long and prosperous life and a healthy life and died... At 90, may have never repented and trusted in Christ. He died of natural causes, but he'll spend eternity in hell. Can't tell anything about a person's soul just by the circumstances in which they die. Believers sometimes die tragic and violent deaths. The greatest example of all is our Savior himself, isn't it? And sometimes unbelievers... Those who disregard God sometimes die very peaceful deaths. Jesus brings up another situation to them. They bring up a situation to him. What about those Galileans murdered by Pilate? He brings up a situation to them. Jesus says, or what about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So Jesus brings in a little bit different scenario. The one by Pilate was man-made, wasn't it? It was man-made. It was intentional. It was violent. It was horrific. But now Jesus brings in a little bit different scenario. And this one was just accidental. This is, nobody caused this on purpose. This just happened. It was an accident. Maybe bad materials, bad workmanship, wind, whatever. This tower fell and 18 people died when this water tower fell in Siloam. It's because God was angry with them and was judging them in a more special, unique, focused way. God says, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. It doesn't matter if it's a plane flying into the side of a building or a flood caused by a broken levee after a hurricane that causes your death. It doesn't matter if it's a car accident or cancer or a tornado. We cannot make the determination that they were God's judgment on that person or persons for their sin. Rather, we need to take those events as opportunities to look at our own souls, because we too may die at any moment, right? You ever heard the expression, a canary in a coal mine? canary in a coal mine. It's an old expression. It goes back. I looked it up because I was interested in where it came from. British coal miners developed this practice in 1911. They would take a small canary in a small cage and they would take it down into the mines and the coal mines. And the reason they would do this is because the canary was more susceptible to carbon monoxide and other harmful gases than human beings. And so if something happened to that canary, if it collapsed and died, guess what? That's a warning, isn't it? That's a warning to get out because there's harmful gases here. There's carbon monoxide poisoning. And so a canary in a coal mine is a warning. It's a warning sign. In essence, Jesus is saying that every death or tragedy that happens in this world is a canary in a coal mine. It's a warning that a much larger judgment is imminent for every one of us. When the canary dies, the miners do not hypothesize about why the canary died or what he did to deserve it, do they? They don't. They take it as a warning to themselves and is meant to, that it is, is meant to be, and they escape and they get out. Jesus is telling the crowd and us to stop hypothesizing about why tragedies befall other people. We should take every death and tragedy as a warning that the ultimate judgment is coming. So what is the condition of our soul? Have we repented and believed in Christ? It doesn't matter how you die. It matters who you know when you die. So does that mean that God never intervenes in judgment in this physical world? No, that's not what I'm saying either. We have several instances in scripture where God does intervene in the world and did specifically bring judgment on people for their sin. The flood is an example of that, isn't it? God brought the flood and, and he did so because of the wickedness of the people. I could give several examples from scriptures. What about the earthquake that swallowed up Korah and his followers? What about the fire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the Babylonians coming into Jerusalem and carrying them off into captivity and exile? They were all judgments of God. They were all calamitous events. So, why are we allowed to say that those were God's judgment, but we can't say that about a hurricane or an earthquake today? Here's the difference God told us about those, right? In Scripture, He said, Here's why I'm bringing a flood. In Scripture, He says to Abraham, Here's what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. God's not telling us that about a hurricane or an earthquake or a violent storm today. So we don't know the mind of God. We don't have supernatural revelation to tell us. We cannot automatically assume that some tragic event is the judgment of God for some specific wickedness. God's mind is more complex than that. In fact, it's infinite. But Jesus is encouraging us to take those moments to not judge other people, but to judge ourselves and to examine our own hearts, because we never know when our appointment with the judgment seat may come. Isn't that what Hebrews nine twenty seven says? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that what? The judgment. Who sets the appointment? God does. We don't know when that appointment will be, and Jesus drives that point home with this parable. In verse six, he's told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. So cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Here's the point that Jesus is making and he's making it to Israel because often in scripture, the fig tree is an image of the people of God, an image of Israel. It goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to Isaiah. The fig tree is an image of Israel. And essentially what Jesus is saying through this parable to unbelieving Israel is you're living on borrowed time. Because here I have been looking for fruit in you fruit of repentance, fruit of faith, fruit of eyes to see that your Messiah is right here and I am seeing no fruit. So may the judgment of God come. May the tree be cut down. Going back to Luke twelve forty nine, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, Jesus said. I've been looking for fruit. I haven't found any. But in essence, Jesus is pleading with the father and saying, give him a little bit more time. One more year. But then if no more fruit, then cut it down. Here's the inter- interesting thing about verse number nine. And, and it's impossible to see this in English. But Greek has a way of formulating conditional statements. And the way Greek has a way of formulating conditional statements is by the way it's constructed, it can show what the author thought or the speaker thought about the probability of that condition coming to pass. So in the first instance in verse 9, where he says, if it bears fruit, and it probably won't, fine. But if not, if it does not bear fruit, and it's likely that it will not bear fruit, then, cut it down, in other words, even in the condition itself, there is skepticism about the possibility or the probability of turning in faith and producing fruit. He knows their hearts, he knows their stubbornness, he know that he knows their hard heartedness, and we know the end of the story don 't we? A little bit more time to show fruit of repentance, a little bit more time to recognize your Messiah a little bit more time to believe and to trust in Him. But we know the end of the story because it comes with a shout, doesn't it? Crucify Him, crucify Him. And they put Jesus on a cross and they kill Him instead of welcoming Him as their Savior and Redeemer. And the point that Jesus is making with the parable is, I've already seen this amount of time of no fruit bearing, This last year, you're living on borrowed time. And the passage that we read earlier in the service from 2 Peter 3, Peter's making that same point. Because there were people, there were scoffers, there were deniers, skeptics. Even in Peter's day, you know, just a few decades after Jesus ascended and went to heaven, And people already scoffing and mocking at the idea of a second coming of Christ saying, where is this coming? Where is the second coming that he promised? And Peter says they're ignorant of many things. One thing they're ignorant of is that God does intervene in judgment in this world. He's done so in the past with the flood. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to do it again at the end of time with fire. And here's the other thing that they don't understand is God's timetable. God's calendar doesn't operate according to you. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Don't take that as a formula for figuring out eschatology. That's not what Peter means there. What he means there is God's timetable doesn't match yours. What seems like a long time to you is nothing to God. Thousand years, is 24 hours. Your, your watch doesn't run the same way God's watch does, in essence. So God's not slow, as you might understand slowness, he says. But why is God doing this? Why is he allowing this time before Jesus comes back again? He gives the answer in verse 9, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's long-suffering, isn't he? He's long-suffering. He's patient. Why why has Jesus not yet come back? It's 2021. Why has Jesus not yet come back? Peter gives us the answer in 2 Peter 3.9. It's because God is being merciful. He's being merciful and He's allowing time for repentance. We are all living on borrowed time. We are all sinners living on. On borrowed time. And unless we repent, we will all perish. So tragedies are not an invitation to judge other people. Jesus says look to your own heart. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? Are you ready for the judgment? Are you ready to stand before God? Stop trying to judge the cause of someone else's death or tragedy. Don't be trying to analyze why God allowed something tragic to happen to a group of other people. Jesus is teaching us that we should be worrying about what's going to happen to us. What we should be wondering about is why God is even allowing us to continue to live. Every extra second that your watch advances forward and you are still alive, it's because of the grace of God. Don't stand in awe that someone else's life ended tragically. Rather stand in awe that yours has not yet. And as you consider that incredible fact, repent and get right with God now before it is too late. That's what Jesus was saying at the end of the parable last week as well. Get things right now. Reconcile before you get to the judge. Because by the time you get to the judge, it'll be too late and you'll be cast into prison. So we are all sinners living on borrowed time. Unless we repent, we will all perish. Christ is the way, isn't he? He's the way. He's the truth. He is the life. It might seem like those scoffers and skeptics in Second Peter 3. It might seem like everything is just moving along normal. Next year is going to be here just like this year was. And the year after that, we don't know that. We don't know when Jesus is coming back again. We need to be ready at any moment because God controls the time. We don't. And so may we prepare our hearts to be ready. If there's someone here in this room who has never placed their faith in Christ and turned from their ways and turned to him, today's the day. Today is the day because we're all living on borrowed time. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, you are indeed a merciful and a long-suffering, patient God. Every single one of us, Father, everyone in this room, every human being, we all deserve judgment. We've all sinned. And fallen short of your glory. But Father, you're patient. You're slow to anger. You're merciful. And in ways beyond our comprehension, you not only were merciful and patient with us, but you lavished your grace on us. You gave us Christ. You gave us someone to stand in our place. You gave us someone to take our sins away as far as the east is from the west. You gave us someone who through his life and death and resurrection can make us forgiven and a part of the family of God. Father, thank you for the grace that you have lavished upon us. And Father... If there is someone here this morning who has not yet opened their eyes to see Christ as their savior, their merciful redeemer, Lord, open their eyes today. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.